Thank you for joining us for a message from the Christian Fellowship Church of Kandu, North Dakota. Please visit our website for more information about our church at kanducfc.com. All right, guys, we've done it. We are at the end of 1 Corinthians. Okay, so no one's cheering, so it's, it wasn't too bad. Did you know that back on January 31st is when we started this series? So it's been a few months. We took a little two-week hiatus around Easter time to look at some Palm Sunday and some Easter Sunday things, and then we continued on, but now here we are at the end of Paul's letter. In, in the first 15 chapters of 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul's done most of the heavy lifting, and all that's left for him to do now is tie up some loose ends. Just, uh, it's kind of like a... I use the word staccato. It's kind of quick and moving around from, from topic to topic or theme to theme in, uh, in this chapter. So it's not going to be dwelling on one main point, but there's several smaller points that we're going to discuss today. So let's, let's dive right into 1 Corinthians 16, and we'll see where the, the passage takes us this morning. So starting with verse 1. Did one of you help me out back there on the PowerPoint? I'm not sure what happened. I lost control. It's not the first time I've lost control, but... Okay, first time on stage. All right, here we go. 1 Corinthians 16. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So this is kind of an interesting topic because Paul hasn't really mentioned anything about this anywhere else in his letter, but clearly this is something that he's talked about with the Corinthians already. So Paul formally addresses uh, a Corinthian question here that they have about an offering that they were taking up for what Paul calls the Lord's people. Now, the Lord's people refers to the church in Jerusalem, as we can tell here from verse 3. So specific details about why Jerusalem or the people or the Christians in Jerusalem needed money, they're not given here in this passage. But if you read other places in Scripture, we understand that the persecution and the uh, economic disadvantage for Christians in, in Jerusalem was quite significant compared to other places in this world. So Paul felt moved that the other churches ought to do something to support this church, Paul became very practical about this matter. It's like he was saying, friends, the original church of our Christian faith in Jerusalem is suffering. We should help them out. And here's how we should do it. And then he explains the plan. He comes up with a very practical solution for getting money collected from the other churches and sending it along to Jerusalem to help it out. He says, money should be collected every Sunday. That's the first day of the week on the calendar. So that when Paul arrives in Corinth, it's not a mad dash to collect all the money at the last minute, but it's already been collected. It's in a central location. And then Paul says he will write letters of introduction for those accompanying the collection to Jerusalem. So the reason for these letters was so that those who were taking the collection to Jerusalem would be seen as trustworthy because they had Paul's endorsement and also because Paul is concerned with creating unity between the churches in the Gentile world. That's like Corinth and Galatia and Ephesus. He wants to create unity with them and the original church where the Jews are in Jerusalem. 
Jews and Gentiles didn't get along for a long, long time. But now through Christ, they found this common unity. And Paul wants to continue to foster that unity. And that's why he's writing these letters of introduction. And finally, he says, if it makes sense for Paul to go, he himself indeed would go with these others who were going to take the offering to Jerusalem. So we see love for people in Paul that causes him to come up with a strategic plan to meet their need. When love fills our hearts, we're moved to act in the best interest of others. That's what love does. Love is not stagnant. Love is not dormant. Love is something that propels us to make a difference in the life of someone else for their benefit rather than for ours. And that, I I believe, is the way of Christ and his kingdom. Going to verse 5. Paul continues, he says, After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. So we've, we've read much through 1 Corinthians about Paul's connection to the church in Corinth. He was the one who founded that church. He has spent a year and a half with them, getting them going. He wrote another letter that we do not have already. So 1 Corinthians is actually his second letter. His connection to them runs deep. And apparently his devotion do, it does as well. The hostility that the Corinthians had towards Paul is well documented in this letter. They didn't always agree with his teaching. But Paul did so much for them that he has, he has remained devoted to their, their spiritual well-being. It's kind of funny. It'd be easy for Paul to say, you know, there's plenty of places where I would be welcomed and even appreciated. Why bother with Corinth anymore? Clearly, this is a struggle that is taking a lot of my time and energy. But he doesn't say that. Paul's desire is to spend significant length of time with these Corinthians, even several months if need be. His desire isn't just to pass through and to say, hey, nice to see you. But he actually loves these people enough that despite the turmoil in the relationship that they had, he wants to spend time with them. For me, this is a huge key to what discipleship looks like. When, when you feel moved by God to invest what you understand about Christ into the life of someone else, what if it doesn't go well? What if there's a speed bump? What if it, it hits a wrinkle, right? What do you do in those situations? Well, here, Paul's showing us You don't give up. You stick with it because Christ has called you to this. This isn't something that you're doing for your own benefit or enjoyment, but you're doing this because you want to serve God and and edify the life of someone else. Plus, Paul also says that he wants to stay with them for a while. Why? So that they can help him on his journey. Now, this isn't Paul asking the Corinthians to finance his travels, but actually he's inviting them to support him and by doing so, share in the furtherance of the gospel. Verse 8 to 9 are especially interesting to me in this passage. It says, but I will stay on at Ephesus. That's the place where Paul is writing this letter from. He says, I'll stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. It's an interesting sentence. eh? It's like it heads in two different directions, yet he says it all in one breath. So Paul says he will come to Corinth, but not yet because God is at work in Ephesus, the city where he is right now. You know, often we look at opportunities to work for the Lord and we hope and even pray that it will be smooth sailing. In our minds, we can sometimes think that if something is easy, 
if it's comfortable, if it makes sense to me, then it must be an opportunity to do something great for God. Well, Paul says the exact opposite, okay? He says that I have a great opportunity in Ephesus for Jesus. How do I know? Many people are totally against me in that place. Most people who live in 2021, when they face great opposition, they would say, oh, I must have heard the Lord wrong because there's a lot of people who are in disagreement with me. And clearly I must be barking up the wrong tree. I don't think that's the case at all. Think about other people in scripture too. Think about some of the the pillars of faith in the Old Testament who were trying to serve God, who God had clearly called to do a work for him. And think about how it was anything but easy. David was anointed to be the next king of Israel, and yet he was hiding for his life because the current king of Israel, Saul, wanted to kill him. That seems backwards, right? When God calls us to do something, it should be easy. We should just stand up and say, I have authority, I'll bow, and let's make this thing happen. But that's not the way it worked. David had to be humble. He had to walk with the Lord faithfully, even after the anointing was firm in his life. Think about Noah who took years and years and years to build an ark. Why? Because God told him so. And not only to build an ark, which was the biggest boat in history. I heard up until roughly the early 1800s, it was still the largest boat ever made by by humanity. And he also had to fill it with two animals of every kind because God said that he was going to flood the entire earth. Now this seems a little bit difficult and possibly even a little bit insane to do something like this. A... Because it had never even rained before, let alone had a flood of these kind of proportions. And then how would a flood like this be possible if no one had ever seen it taking place? Would it have been easy or difficult to follow God in that situation? It would have been hard. It would have been very hard. Think about Moses and how he experienced God in the burning bush talking to him, telling him to lead a million plus Jews out of captivity in Egypt. They were under the control of Pharaoh, who's like the king of Egypt, the leader of the most powerful nation in the world at that time. His message, or God's message, came to Moses in Midian. That's where he saw this burning bush. But why was Moses in Midian? Because he fled from Pharaoh and from Egypt 40 years earlier because he had murdered an Egyptian. So did God even have the right guy? And did God even have the right plan in calling Moses to do something so crazy in our eyes? It didn't seem very easy. It didn't seem like it would make a whole lot of sense. But that's exactly what God wanted to do. And even think about Jesus, right? He was supposed to save the world from sin, yet he died on a cross. How can you defeat sin and death when you yourself have died? Right? That's a huge question. Well, we know the answer. We talk about it every Easter. We talk about it when we share the gospel. Jesus defeated death by rising back to life. We talked about our glorious resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. That was my favorite chapter by far, so far in this series. I believe, friends, in my heart that God is at his best, his best, when situations we are in seem difficult, uncomfortable, and far beyond our understanding. Paul says... In his weakness, that's when God's strength is most clearly on display. And Paul understood that here in this passage too. So in the circumstances that Paul saw in Ephesus, opposition and difficulty weren't a deterrent. They were actually a confirmation that Paul was in the right place at the right time. 
I highlight these verses once again because so many times we look for an open door, what we call an open door. But really, if we're honest, we're looking for an easy door. Doors that are open, that God has created to be open, are not always easy. God tells us what is right and we do it. Not depending on our own understanding of what is right, but on what God says through his wise and excellent counsel in our lives. I think actually opposition down here on earth is a manifestation of the conflict that is going on in the spiritual realm that we cannot see. It's a conflict for the souls of those that God is trying to win over from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So we know that when God is making ground in the spiritual realm in someone's life, that conflict is probably going to be manifested here through great difficulty. So it's all the more worthwhile to persevere and to say, yeah, I'm here in this place because it's not easy. And that's how I know that God might be at work. Moving on in our chapter 16 here, verse 10. Paul says, when Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you. For he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with any contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. So speaking of travel plans, Paul had talked about his own. Now he's talking about his protege, Timothy's travel plans. Paul is sending Timothy from Ephesus to Corinth. And Paul is concerned about how Timothy is going to be received when he gets there. Now this hints back to the tensions once again that the Corinthians and Paul had, right? Timothy was actually there in Corinth for the better part of a year to help Paul get the church started there. So they know that Timothy is associated with Paul. So if they have hard feelings towards Paul, it's possible that their hard feelings might spill over to Timothy. So that's why Paul's concerned. So Paul outlines how he expects the Corinthians to treat Timothy, someone who is carrying on the work of the Lord. Verse 12. Now about our brother Apollos. He's talking about a few other guys who were in the ministry. So he talks about Apollos, who we also saw towards the beginning of this letter. I strongly urged him to go with, you, with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. So the Corinthians, they liked Apollos. He was this theological, you know, he-man. He had all this might and power in his words. He talked in the way that the Corinthians enjoyed listening. They actually preferred Apollo to Paul. And that's why they were asking for him. So by Paul mentioning that he urged Paul, or Apollos to pay a visit to Corinth, despite Apollos not being able to go at that exact moment, Paul's actually communicating two things to the Corinthian people. A, he's telling them that he wants the Corinthians to receive what they are apparently asking for, a visit from Apollos. And B, Paul is showing them that he and Apollos, they're not rivals, they actually work together. And only they're seen as rivals in Corinth. And he's trying to show them, guys, no, 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 I, I'm going to send Apollos to you because we work together. We respond to one another, we submit to one another, we respect one another. And that's a good thing for them to understand because if they see, oh, Paul actually cares about this guy that we care for, maybe Paul's not so bad after all. Okay, moving on to verse 13. Paul then says with a bit of an exhortation, a bit of an encouragement, he says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. So using an encouraging and exhorting tone, Paul begins to put a final stamp 
on the entirety of his letter. He urges the Corinthians to guard against anything that can steal them away from the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this has been a huge theme all throughout this letter, right? We've seen all the different things that have steered the Corinthians away from the truth of who Jesus is. The gospel is all that matters. At the end of the day, that's where we need to stay rooted. We need to stay firm. We need to cling to that truth. We need to hold on to it for the entirety of our life. Then Paul tells them also to stand firm in the faith. The faith that you put in the gospel of Jesus Christ when you first believed. Don't get taken or fooled by any other teaching or belief system that presents itself to you. In this world, there's all sorts of different messages, even false messages that are going to come against Christ to try to persuade us away from the truth that Jesus Christ loved us, that he died for us, that he rose again victorious, and that all who believe in him will be saved from their sins and can look forward to eternity with Christ in heaven. That's the truth that this world and all of its false teachings are trying to steer us away from. So that's why we need to stand firm in our faith. Don't start to put your faith in something else, but be rooted in what you know is true. Paul teaches that to stay with the gospel, to stay firm in your faith and not be uprooted, it will also take strength or courage and strength. The powers of evil that are trying to take hold of people are very real. The kingdom of darkness, even though it has been eternally defeated through Christ's victory on the cross, it's still trying to fight against God's kingdom and cause as few of us as possible to enter the kingdom of heaven. Courage and strength are needed to make sure that we are not a casualty of the spiritual war that is still raging all around us. Courage and strength help us to choose Christ daily and to remain with him even in the face of of great struggle, great opposition, or great temptation. And finally, love can never be underestimated. Everything that is good in the eyes of God, everything that is a confirmation of our faith, everything that helps us to have courage and strength to remain in our faith is founded in love. This certainly points back to chapter 13's extensive emphasis on love being the greatest, right? That was an amazing chapter. Verse 15. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. So Paul's pointing to a man named Stephanus as an example of the kind of person that we in the church are supposed to submit to. Stephanus and his family were the first people uh, Paul won over to the Lord when he arrived in the province of Achaia. And we haven't heard the name Achaia yet, but the province of Achaia is where the city of Corinth is located. From that day on, Stephanus, from the day that they put their faith in Jesus, Stephanus and his whole household were devoted to serving, caring for, and ministering to the church. Sounds like an awesome testimony, right? Like from day one, they put their faith in Jesus and they were in like a dirty shirt. They were just so fully committed and devoted to all the things that Paul had told them about and taught them to do that they couldn't choose a lifestyle besides the one that was pleasing to the Lord. 
to submit here, uh, when Paul says to submit to people like this who leave this kind of life for the betterment of the Lord's people, to submit here isn't necessarily to fall under their authority. Oftentimes when we hear the word submit, we think about a power structure. We think about like, this guy's in charge and I need to submit to him. That could be part of the kind of the flavor of this word, but I don't think that's exactly what's going on here. The main point behind the word submit is actually to, to listen to the biblical and godly advice and counsel of someone who is completely devoted to Jesus and his church. You know, when I think about people who are devoted to Jesus and his church and have godly advice or counsel, I'm reminded of a man named Chris that I knew from the church where I was a youth pastor. I didn't know Chris in his earlier years. He was a little bit older than me, but as I got to know his story, it was very interesting. Chris grew up in a home where his parents were not believers. So he had to make a choice all on his own as to what he was going to believe and do with his life. As a teenager, uh, Chris came to the church at Pine Ridge. That was the name of the church where I was a youth pastor. And he gave his life to the Lord. And very quickly... Without delay or hesitation, Chris then began to serve in the church. He began to help out wherever he could. He volunteered when there was a need. He taught Sunday school. He learned to use his gift of playing the piano in the worship ministry at church. And by the time uh, my family and I arrived, he was well ingrained in the leadership of the church, serving in multiple ways. You know, and Chris is the kind of guy that because of his devotion to the church because he did not hesitate to belong to the work of the church, he was a guy I didn't mind listening to. We didn't always agree on everything, but his thoughts came from a biblical perspective. They were not ever his opinion. He never came to me and says, Jeff, you should do blank. He always said, hey, Jeff, you know, I was reading in the Bible the other day. What do you think of this? Those were the kinds of conversations that we had. And someone who comes to me and says, hey, I've been reading in the Bible. As soon as you say that, you have my full attention. Because now I know that I don't just, I'm not just listening to your opinion, but I'm listening to what the Lord might be saying to your heart, which is so special, right? That's the kind of guy that Chris Jansen was. And I, I just think that it's cool to recognize people like that in our lives. Um, verse 17, it kind of sounds like Paul's taking a shot at the Corinthians. That verse said, I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. But that's not a shot at all. He's not like, he's not kind of taking a low blow at these guys, okay? What he's doing is he's praising Stephanus along with other two men, Fortunatus and Achaicus, because their visit to Paul in Ephesus was a blessing to Paul. Paul missed the people of Corinth that he spent so much time with, that he dedicated so much energy to. And the visit of these three men for Paul was like a renewed connection to the whole church, it would have been impractical for all the people of Corinth to leave, to go to visit Paul in Ephesus. But it was totally cool for three guys to go on behalf of the church. So the whole church couldn't give on their own to Paul, but these three men representing the church could certainly be an encouragement. And I think that's awesome that Paul would recognize it. He said, these guys gave to me what was lacking from you. It's not lacking because you didn't have the heart to be with me and to encourage me, but it's because it's just impractical. So Paul's recognizing them in that, in that phrase, actually. Paul praises these three men one last time, saying that people like this deserve recognition. I, I thought about that. I don't know if we, and I say the royal we, not CFC, but we as 
as God's church. I don't know if we do an amazing job of recognizing people who are devoted followers of Jesus. I mean, we might in some ways. I mean, we might individually, but it just kind of made me wonder. It made me think about some questions that I thought might be worth asking. So I just have a few questions, and you don't have to answer out loud, but these are just to promote some thought. Do you know someone here at CFC that has devoted themselves, like their life, to serving people? Do you know someone who prays for and encourages others on a consistent basis? Do you know someone who presses into the word of God so that they can turn around and share it with others, encouraging them in their faith? Do you know someone who seeks out others to spend time with them and to care for them and to invest in their lives? Do you know someone who sacrifices their time to build up others and spur them on in Christ? You know, I thought about these questions for myself and in our church, because that's the context that we're in. I see those kind of people. Absolutely, I do. I see people like that here at Christian Fellowship Church in Kandu, North Dakota. And for those of you who fit the bill, who, who are working in these areas, whether it's consistent or not, whether it's perfect or not, let's not, let's not split hairs here, okay? But for those who even have the desire to live a life in that way, I just want to acknowledge you right now. I'm not going to call on any names, but I know who you are. I see you the way you live your life. I know that I could come up to you and ask for prayer and you wouldn't be weirded out. I know that I could ask you what you thought of a verse and you'd be like, oh yeah, absolutely. I was actually thinking about that one months ago or weeks ago because you're in the Bible. I see the way that you look for other people. You come to me with prayer concerns say, hey, I found this out. Can we pray together? You stop in at my office and you say, I think we should pray about this. Can we do that together right now? I just want to acknowledge you, acknowledge that I see your heart and I see the devotion that you have in your life for Jesus Christ. And I also want to encourage you, please continue. Please continue. Don't think that the work that you're doing for the Lord is unfruitful or unnoticed. I notice it. And friends, if you notice someone like this too, it's actually our job as their church community as their brothers and sisters in Christ, to acknowledge it as well. So if you know someone like that, tell them that you see what they're doing and that you appreciate it. Keep it up because our church benefits from people like this. Now Paul begins to end this letter with some final greetings, starting in verse 19. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets in their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I like what Paul does here. In his greeting, he's actually reminding us and the Corinthians that we're not alone. Sometimes people may be tempted to think, well, hey, we're just in small town North Dakota. You know, what does our faith really matter? There's people who are meeting right now of this day, all over the world, all over the world, to press into the presence of Jesus, to worship Him and to glorify Him. And somehow, when we put ourselves collectively in the greater body of Christ, not just the body here in Kandu, but the body that meets all over the world, I wonder if that helps us to say, okay, we're part of something bigger than what we even see going on here. And Christ is not just centered here in Kandu, but He is alive and well, and real all over this world. I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of a God who is recognized worldwide 
because of how good he is. The same things I believe are the same things that the church in China that is massively persecuted is believing. Uh, The same things that I believe are the same things that the church in Iran believes. And there are people who are being crucified on crosses every day in Iran for their faith. That's the same God that I believe in. If they can press into God, if they can continually follow him despite persecution and difficulty, so can I. I'm in. Thank you for that encouragement, Paul. Thank you for reminding us that we're not alone. We're not just doing our own thing, but we're part of something so much bigger and greater than anything we could possibly imagine. The Corinthians were also familiar with Aquila and Priscilla, who Paul mentions here. Aquila and Priscilla were the first two Christians that Paul met when he first came to Corinth. And and Aquila and Priscilla have not forgot about the people of Corinth, although they are now ministering with Paul in Ephesus. Paul says to greet one another with a holy kiss. And for all of you who take the Bible at its most literal phrase, then you better get on it. (laughs) But that's not what it means. It's not literal for us. Because that was a common greeting in the day. They greet one another with a kiss on the cheek. Really what it says is like, remember when when you say, oh, you're going to Kandu? Oh, give them a hug for me, right? That's more common to what we would say. That's the kind of greeting that Paul's saying. Hey, guys, greet each other with a kiss. Because if I was there, I'd be laying one on you right now. On the cheek. Okay, just making sure. Verse 21, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. This is an interesting verse here, because up until this point, one of Paul's co-workers in the gospel, a man named Sosthenes, that we can read about in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1, he was likely the one writing the letter to the Corinthians that Paul was dictating to him. So it's been Sosthenes' handwriting up until this point, but now... In order to authenticate this letter and to show that it's not a counterfeit or or someone who's trying to do something in Paul's name, Paul writes in his own handwriting. And the first thing that he says is, if anyone does not love the Lord, that person be, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. So Paul gives one last reminder of the great importance of loving the Lord. In other words, what's going on in our heart once again, is the thing that absolutely matters. Don't just do what I'm telling you to do. This letter has a lot of instructions, Paul is saying, but don't just go through the motions. That's empty-headed religion, and that never saved anyone. That never honored God. But he says, love the Lord. That's where everything happens. That's where the rubber hits the road. Love for Jesus must be found in our heart. If love for Jesus isn't present in our heart then a person is cursed, according to Paul. Why is that? Because if you don't love Jesus, if we haven't truly put our faith in him, then we're lacking the one true thing that brings us into unity with God. Romans 9 verse 3 teaches us that someone who is cursed is cut off from God. That means that we don't have fellowship with Christ. We haven't been saved by him. We haven't been welcomed into his family. And all those things take place when we love the Lord. And choose to put our faith in him. Paul is emphasizing everything that Jesus himself made crystal clear in his ministry on earth. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. So there's an order to the statement that right here in John 14 that agrees with what Paul is saying. Love Jesus. That's of first and greatest importance. And then from that love, from that heart that is affectionate towards Christ, then you can obey 
God and keep his commands. Because you can't obey God without loving him first. Because the first and greatest command of, that we're supposed to obey is to love the Lord. It's amazing how these things make sense when we piece all these parts of the Bible together. And then these two words at the end, come Lord, is an invitation. It's a prayer. And it fits with hearts, or Paul's heart of urgency in light of Jesus' return. All that Paul wrote in this letter matters because Paul believed, and we still believe, that Christ is coming back. Paul was urgent to get the good news of the gospel all over the world because he believed that Christ was coming back soon. Jesus' return is something for us to be aware of as we live here today, but also to look forward to with much joy. All right, here it is, guys. The last two verses of the entire letter of 1 Corinthians. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. So the Corinthian church, now that we've read every verse that this whole book of the Bible has to share with us, the Corinthian church, we can realize they had some pretty significant issues. But Paul lovingly and unapologetically addressed all of these issues head on in an effort to point these believers back to the truest path that led to Christ. Think of everything that we've read about in this chapter. Conflicts, selfishness, inconsiderate use of freedoms, sexual sin, disorder in worship, misuse of spiritual gifts, and wrong attitudes and understandings about the resurrection. For me, one of the big picture takeaways from this letter is that every single church in this world has tensions and troubles. That's just a product of still living here on earth. And I just want to get this out in the open. We are a church that also has tensions and troubles, okay? We're not immune to these things. I'm not saying that that's our greatest characteristic and that's our reputation. But we would have our head in the sand if we said, oh, no, no. All these things that the Corinthians struggled with, we've never had that issue. We've been there too, friends. That's why these are good books for us to read. We haven't reached perfection yet, and that's why tension and trouble are just a part of what it means as a church to grow in love, to grow in devotion to Jesus, because we haven't met perfection yet. The goal for us is to not ignore issues or to pretend that troubles that pop up in our church and or in our life aren't real, like Paul, we should just acknowledge them and deal with any problems that arise, not avoid them or pretend like nothing's wrong. That's, that's an ignorant way of living. And Christ doesn't convict our hearts. He doesn't point out things that need to be dealt with so that we can ignore them and pretend that we're okay. We come to church, we put on a smile and a brave face and our best clothes, and, and sometimes I think that the pressure is we come here and we say, Okay, how do I make it look like I'm here to worship God? How do I make it look like the rest of my life isn't just rotten? Right? We, we do these things. We put on this mask. But let's be authentic. Let's just be real. I've had a rotten week at times. And I come here and I don't want to fake it till I make it. That's not following Jesus. Following Jesus is saying, God, this has been harder than I thought. I'm screwing up in all these areas that I thought were going to be an instant source of healing and relief in my life. And yet the addiction or the temptation or, or the, the sin category that I've fallen into in my past, I'm there. I'm still there or I'm there again. And I don't want to be there, but I also don't want to lie about this. So I got to figure this out. I just want to be real. 
Friends, that's the kind of attitude that it's going to take for us to walk closer in relationship with Jesus. You can't fake it till you make it because Jesus sees right through that. And all he says is, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened. You know what that means? We have to acknowledge that we're weary and heavy burdened. We have to acknowledge that sin is kicking our butts. We have to acknowledge that we don't have things figured out. I've been a Christian for, how old am I? 35 years. 35 years I've been walking with the Lord in one way or another. Do I have it figured out? Not a chance. And there's some of you who could dwarf my 35 years. You've been walking with the Lord for the better part of a century. And you would acknowledge too, because I know you. I know that you love Jesus. That you don't have it figured out yet. That's why we are honest about who we are before Christ. When we have issues in a church, if someone were to say something or something were to be revealed to us, we don't come to chastise. We don't come to to wrap someone's knuckles or to beat them over the head and tell them to get their crap together. That's not it at all. Yeah, I said the word crap. What we should do, though, is take a note from Paul's book here where we deal with them with love and with grace and with truth. We point them back to Christ. We don't pat them on the back and say, hey, I'm sure it's just a phase and you'll get over it. That's not godly. That's a lie. It's not a phase. It's a spiritual war. You're not going to get over it on your own. But hey, I love you enough that I'm willing to walk with you and we can find out a truth together. Let's look at what God has to say so that we can climb out of this hole because I'm not leaving you behind and I, I sure don't want you to leave me behind either. Unity and love, those are the stalwart trademarks of what God's church is supposed to be more than anything else. No one is above these things. No leader or person bearing a title in the church or any individual is more important than the church's health as a whole. Whether there's an issue with a board member or a deacon or with me as your pastor or someone who's only been coming to to CFC for a few months, all of these people are equal in their standing in the church. And if any one of these people wants to grow in their relationship with Christ, or if any of these people has an area where they need to grow in their relationship with Christ, we have an equal responsibility to all of them. That's the beauty of this letter. We see that Paul understands the importance of the church He could have just said, you know what, I think these people love Jesus. And really, if that's what they do, who cares about anything else? If Paul would have said that, how long do you think that church in Corinth would have lasted? How strong do you think their testimony would have been in sharing the gospel with this broken world that they lived in? They had already started to become more like the world than they were supposed to be. They were, they were trying to be like the church, but the world was gaining ground in their lives. So instead of Paul just saying, ah, you guys love Jesus, good enough, we'll see you in heaven. He actually says, no guys, there's a better way. And let's fight for the better way. Let's fight for what Christ has for us. Because there is nothing more important in this earth than to be unified in heart and in mind as we pursue Jesus together. If trouble arises in our church, let's pray, let's seek the Lord, let's look to the Bible, and let's lean on who God has blessed us with in our church to receive wise and godly counsel that's rooted in scripture, not in opinion or preference. We haven't done this before, but I, uh, I was kind of thinking, how do we wind up this, this message series? And I have a prayer that I've written out. I, 
I don't usually write out prayers. And when I say usually, I mean ever. I don't ever write out prayers. But I wanted us to pray in unison the same words. So you kind of have to do these things, right? So I have a prayer that I I think is just kind of a reaffirmation of our desire as a church to be all that Christ wants us to be. It just highlights a couple of things that we've talked about today or some themes that have been pretty consistent through 1 Corinthians 16. So I would invite all of us, whether you're a regular part of CFC or not, whether you're checking us out for the first time or you're visiting from out of town or you're like, I found the wrong church and I meant to go to the Catholic one or whatever. Whether, whether it doesn't matter. I would just invite you to stand with us and I'd invite you to pray this prayer together. Just so follow my voice and we're going to pray together in unison. We're not going to go too fast, so just follow along. You ready? Here we go. Lord Jesus, thank you for making us your church here in Kandu. Please help us to love you above all else. Cause us to always hold to the truth of your word. May we never sweep sin or false teaching under the rug. Help us to eagerly serve and encourage one another for the purposes of spiritual maturity and unity. And cause us to be strong and courageous in our faith, all the more as the day of your return approaches. Amen.